The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. One of the goals of the show from the very beginning has been to heal the damage done to people who undergo a spiritually transformative experience and then try to share it with others only to be told by their family, friends, and even religious and medical personnel that they are delusional. Some may even become convinced they are losing their minds. Our guest today, Dr. Manuel Maidas, is a clinical psychiatrist, author, portrait artist, photographer, and public speaker who lives in Winnipeg, Canada. Perhaps most importantly, Manny, as he likes to be called, is an experiencer who has learned to differentiate between the various symptoms of mental illness and truly anomalous experience. Dr. Matus is a clinical psychiatrist who has 40 years experience working in mental health. He earned his medical degree from the University of Manitoba and his diploma in psychiatry from McGill University. He has worked in a variety of settings, including the Scarborough Board of Education, the University of Toronto, and the University of Manitoba Teaching Hospitals, and more recently in private practice. He has served on the board and the Scientific Council of the Canadian Psychiatric Association, as well as the boards of Physicians for Social Responsibility, Psychiatrists Against Psychiatric Abuse, the Manitoba Satir Institute, and the Learning Institute for Growth, Healing, and Transformation. His accomplishments include many published articles in peer-reviewed journals and presentations at national psychiatric conferences. In his book, The Borders of Normal, a clinical psychiatrist destigmatizes paranormal phenomena. Manny describes a number of his own anomalous or paranormal experiences. These include near-death and out-of-body experiences, visions from message-bearing apparitions, and precognitive rather prophetic, dreams. It's his hope that by sharing his knowledge of and experience in both psychiatry and the experiencer's world of the multidimensional, that he will help to destigmatize paranormal and psychic phenomena, thereby allowing experiencers to recast their spiritual encounters as cogent and deeply meaningful. Manny Matus, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Manny, I really enjoyed reading your book and the variety of source quotes in it from scientists, philosophers, and even the Beatles. Um, But why don't we begin with some of the STEs you mentioned in your book? Uh, Maybe we could start with your respiratory exam dream. Oh, sure. Well, this occurred when I was 19 years old, a second-year medical student. The night before the exam, I dreamt the exam. When I woke up, The dream started to fade, as dreams do, but I remember the first question on the exam. So when I went to my exam, the exam was just as it appeared in my dream. And the first question on the exam was also the first question in my dream, which I had studied that morning. So I felt like my dream had helped me pass my exam. So you were smart enough to follow the the suggestion of your dream and actually study up on that first question. That's right. (laughs) <laughs> now, the, uh, let me ask you about another one. You had an apparition of the Hermit Tarot card from the Rider Waite deck. Um, and that card, uh, you mentioned in your book, Carl Jung called that 
the archetype of the wise old man. Now tell us uh, about that and what it meant to you. Well, the figure of the hermit in the tarot deck is a cowled monk holding a lantern. And inside the lantern is a, a five-pointed star. And the, the light of the lantern can represent enlightenment. Now, when I saw that figure appear in my bedroom, it was just a flash for a few seconds. But it was a time of great personal upheaval. Mm. And somehow I got a message from the figure of the hermit. And the message was basically, it's okay. And you're okay. So I understood that to be a message of reassurance. Saying, don't worry, things, things are going to be fine. You know, you're going through a hard time right now, but it's going to turn out okay. That was the message. Um, I've had similar messages which were reassuring to me, but mm -hmm. were not explicable in terms of the rational mind. Another time I felt a disembodied hand on my shoulder, which I also took as a measure of comfort and support. And the interesting thing, both with the dream and with the hand on the shoulder, I've met other people who've had similar experiences. And knowing that someone else has had the same experience somehow normalized it. You know, because initially I was afraid to talk about these experiences because I was worried about what people would think about them. Yes. Uh, I could add that I actually, uh, someone passed in the hospital and I felt their hand on my shoulder as they, as they left. So oh, did I, you? I, it was amazing. I was sitting in the cafeteria and uh, no one anywhere near me. And I felt this hand on my shoulder and knew immediately who it was. That's interesting. Well, uh, I actually have another story about a hand on the shoulder. So you know how um, priests and rabbis and ministers go visit patients in the hospital? Yes. So I was talking to a rabbi who went to visit a patient who was going for surgery. He had a very severe intestinal condition. And he said they um, sent him for some blood tests just pre-surgery. While he was sitting with the patient, he was praying with him and meditating, and he felt a hand on his shoulder. Mm. When they got the results of the lab tests, all the tests had returned to normal, and they canceled the surgery. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a hand on the shoulder and a miracle at the same time. Right. That's right. <laughs> One of the uh, very impressive visions that you had were, were the angels that appeared at your father's funeral. Um, t tell us about that. All right. You know, I should say that with the other experiences I had prior to seeing the angels, I didn't tell anyone. For you know, reasons of, you know, feeling embarrassed or wondering what people would think. But with the angels, when I saw the angels, one on either side of my father's casket, at that point, I felt like I had to start talking about it mm -hmm. because it was too important to keep to myself. Yes. So what I saw, and this might sound strange, but it seemed to me they came in on a beam of light. And they were absolutely huge, one on either side of the casket. They filled up the room from floor to ceiling. They were wearing white, long white robes. They had long hair. I couldn't tell if they were male or female. Mm -hmm. They were the most beautiful creatures I'd ever seen. And while I was looking at them, I received a message. It occurred to me that they were called ministering angels. 
that they were ministering to my father to help him make the transition from this world to the next world. And as soon as I had that thought, the angels disappeared. Wow. So they were there, do you think, for, for you as well as for, for him? Yes, I think so. And I also think they were there for my mother because I was sitting next to her, you know, in the front pew at the funeral home. Yes. And then as we were leaving the funeral home on the way to the cemetery, I told my mother about my vision of the angels. And she said, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, but she didn't see them herself. No, I was the only one that saw them. But I feel they were there for me and my mother. But that was secondary. They were mainly there for my father. So you were you were definitely meant to share that with your mother so that she would know. I think so. I think I was meant to share it with my mother and also with other people, as I'm sharing with you now. Yes. Uh, there was one other that I wanted to ask you about, the dream that you had that you compared to uh, Henri Rousseau's painting, The Dream. Yes. Tell us about that. That's right. Well, that was a time when I had been in the hospital. I was very ill. I was sent home Friday night, 10 p.m. I think they needed the bed for another patient. So I don't think I was fully recovered, but I went home. It was winter. It was dark. It was cold. No, I went to bed and I had that dream. That dream was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It was um, like I was in a beautiful, lush, green garden. Everything in the garden was green. And when I was in that dream, I had the feeling like I was in heaven. I referred to it as my heavenly dream. Mm. It was so peaceful. It was so calm. It was so joyful. And I was just surrounded by beauty. It it sounds very much like uh, the Garden of Eden stories that we hear from uh, near-death experiencers. Yes, that's exactly what I thought myself after I woke up. I identified that scene with the Garden of Eden. Mm. That Rousseau painting, is that hanging in the uh, Museum of Modern Art? I think it is. If it's, it's a, Is there a, a woman on a couch asleep in the midst of um, uh, of amazing tropical paradise? No, I think that's a different painting. A different one. Okay. Same. There's a woman playing a flute. And in the foreground, there's a big uh, lion. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. I, I know the one now. Um, in your book, you have Carl. You mentioned Carl Jasper's defining uh, hallucination as a perception without a stimulus. How would you describe the difference between hallucinations and anomalous events, such as the ones you just talked about? Well, the halluc- a hallucination can affect any of the five senses. But the events which I described are not necessarily hallucinations. Um, I prefer to call them visions. Because the word, halluc- the word hallucination implies pathology. And in my book, The Borders of Normal, I try to help people distinguish between a psychotic hallucination, and what I would call a psychic or a spiritual hallucination. And there's a number of different ways to distinguish the two both quantitative and qualitative. What we would call a psychotic hallucination, as I said, it could be any of the five senses, but the most common are visual or auditory. So with an auditory hallucination, a psychotic hallucination would be very frightening, 
It might be telling the person what to do. There might be more than one voice. There might, they might be uh, dialoguing and talking about the patient or accusing him of certain things or insulting him. Whereas the psychic hallucination or spiritual hallucination tends to be very uplifting and comforting, hmm. such as the ones which I experienced. So the hand on my shoulder could be called a tactile hallucination, and the vision of the hermit could, could be called a visual hallucination. But I, I prefer to avoid that term hallucination because, as I said, it can be misconstrued. Now, aside from the nature of the hallucination, the other issue is the frequency. I've had a handful of these experiences in my lifetime. But someone who suffers from psychosis has hallucinations or delusions every day because that's part of the illness. It's not something that just happens once in a while. So there's the nature, the severity, and the frequency. Those are distinguishing features. But the most important way to distinguish is that in a psychotic illness, the delusions and hallucinations completely take over the person and interfere with the person's ability to function. Mm. Whereas in my case, you know, when I had that precognitive dream or when I had an out-of-body experience, when I was a psychiatry resident at McGill, I just basically shrugged it off and went on with my day, which a psychotic person would not be able to do. Do you suppose the difference is the fact that um, the, com- the, uh, the comfort that you receive from the vision that you have uh, is uh, such a positive force that that you don't feel like you're sick at all. But but for someone who is hallucinating, uh, for instance, I had a uh, someone in my congregation who saw angry faces coming out of the wall at him almost all the time. Um, they're so horrifying or or depressing that uh, that they could legitimately be called a, a a sickness. Is it? Do you suppose it's the nature of the of the um, event that? has some of a bearing on, on whether it's categorized as an illness or not? Well, that's part of it. But it's also important to remember that some people who have a psychotic illness, whether it's angry faces coming out of the wall or whatever it is, they often don't have any insight into their illness. and They often don't think that they're ill. Mm. Wow. I, I have to ask, you've had uh, several, um, I call them supernatural experiences, and yet uh, you chose not to write about them until your retirement. And, um, you know, at first I thought, well, I wonder why he didn't incorporate them into your professional practice. But then I thought, and I mentioned this to you earlier in a conversation we had, is it something like military and commercial pilots who can't talk about the UFOs that they actually see for fear that they'll be uh, ridiculed by their, uh, you know, by, by their compatriots? Is that the way it is in psychiatry as well? Well, I would say so. I think that's a good analogy. Mm. But the other factor is I didn't really start to write about it until after I saw the angels. Yes. To me, that was so dramatic that I felt I had to share it with people. Mm. And what was the reaction when you first started telling people about it? Did they, did they believe you? I know your mother did, but I mean, did others? I told a few people. I mean... To be frank, they weren't impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that, that's a, probably an understatement. <laughs> um, uh, we were talking about voices a minute ago. In your book, you mentioned that patients who faked hearing voices, right. I, they could fool the doctors. 
but they could not fool the real patients who heard voices. Tell us about that. Well, you really can't make a diagnosis of schizophrenia on the basis of a single symptom. But uh, these doctors who saw the patients, the fake patients, the actors who are pretending to be patients in the emergency room, I imagine they were very pressured for time. They didn't do a thorough assessment Mm -hmm. and they just transferred them to psychiatry. Unfortunately, I'm sure they were discharged soon after they were admitted to the ward, but they were, they were actually given medication, which they didn't take. So that's why I like to emphasize that you have to look at the whole person and the whole personality and the ability to function before you can actually make a diagnosis of a psychotic illness. Mm. Yes. In your book, you point out that in Greek, psyche means soul, but in English, we use it to mean mind which then gets further reduced to, in some cases, to brain. So I gather even Freud thought of psychoanalysis as an analysis of the soul. And perhaps that the fact that we do not have this bigger picture uh, is at the root of the problem we have with materialist science today. Well, I think that's right. I think that's a sign of how secular and how materialist our society has become, that the word soul, you know, in the medical community is almost a taboo word. Hmm. But I'm hoping that my book, The Borders of Normal, will in a sense provide a bridge between the medical community and the spiritual community, or between the material world and the spiritual world. Yeah. In your book, you quote Abraham Maslow as saying, our need for transcendence is critical. Why do you think that's true? Well, because people need to have a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. Most people are not content just to go through the nine to five, you know, routine day after day, day after day, mm-hmm. without thinking, why am I here? Why was I born? You know, my, my life must have some meaning or purpose. What is it? And, you know, when they start thinking about that, they start thinking about feeling like there must be part of some kind of plan, the reason they were born, they must have a purpose in life. And that suggests to me that they, they need to transcend the day-to-day nine-to-five routine. Uh, do you have any statistics on how many people actually pursue that course? No, I couldn't say. And I think it would be hard to find statistics because many people don't talk about it. Yes. Just as you know, I mentioned in my book also that people who have paranormal or supernatural experiences often don't talk about them, even though they're extremely common. There was one study, for example, of bereaved widows and widowers. Who, there was a study published in the British Medical Journal, and nearly half of the bereaved widows and widowers either saw or heard or felt a touch or smelled the scent of the deceased loved one, but they didn't tell anyone. They wouldn't even tell their doctors. They wouldn't tell their closest friends. That's why I feel it's important for me and others who have these experiences to talk about them in order to normalize them, because that gives permission to other people to talk about their own experiences without feeling embarrassed or ashamed or feeling that they're losing their mind. Yes, I I, I found that when I was a, a chaplain in the hospital and I tell a patient perhaps about my own NDE or another patient. Uh, another patient's story where the patient had given me permission to share it without names, of course. And then all of a sudden it would remind them of some story they'd heard from a family relative or something actually that had happened to themselves. 
and it would it's like a, a dam breaking you know then they want to talk about these things and with a lot of with a lot of interest and which is why i always why well, one reason i do this show is to encourage people to talk about their ndes and their spiritually transformative experiences yeah i had a very similar experience if i was giving a talk somewhere or reading for my book there would be a long lineup of people afterwards waiting to talk to me to share their own experiences with me <laughs> yes <laughs> they've never told anyone else you know <laughs> so somehow people need permission to say it's okay to talk about these things mm-hmm. and by the way i think somehow the stigma attached to the paranormal is also related to the stigma attached to mental illness because one of the reasons people don't want to talk about these things is that they're afraid they're losing their mind but now i find more and more people are talking about their own issues with their mental health um even like even during the recent olympics simone bowles talked about her struggles yes and she talked about having adhd and being on medication for adhd and saying there's nothing wrong with that you know and you and it's okay to talk about it and even naomi osaka during the recent french open she had to withdraw because of her mental health struggles so more people more you know celebrities and well-known people prince harry for example has talked about his mental health struggles so i think somehow the stigma hopefully is becoming less but the stigma really is about prejudice and bias you know yes of course <clears throat> one of the areas that and, and you mentioned this in your book as well as um deathbed visions where uh you say 50 to 60% of people conscious at the time of death have visions of an afterlife and that's probably the reason that so many hospice workers are uh cognizant of the fact that these that these visions do occur on a regular basis because um deathbed uh patients are feel freer i think to say oh look at that look at that look at the wall it's a beautiful garden and i see my family coming for me or something along those lines that's right i mean at that point i guess you've got nothing to lose yes you no know, there's no reason not to share it yeah but as much from that the feeling is so overwhelming that they have to say something and these deathbed visions of deceased friends or relatives coming to accompany the patient to the other side are extremely common and there was one cross cultural study comparing hospice patients in the US and hospice patients in India and the deathbed visions were extremely common in in both countries mm. and the other thing that was kind of remarkable about these deathbed visions it's been reported that several times that sometimes family members at the bedside even medical personnel shared the vision Yes, shared uh, shared death experiences are amazing too. I I had one of those. Um, um, why do you suppose churches are are so negative about uh, OBEs and NDEs when they are such a big part of their tradition? Um, in your book, you mentioned Joan of Arc's vision of uh, Archangel Michael, for example, and you also mentioned the uh, Jewish Merkaba or chariot mysticism of the Middle Ages. Could you tell yeah. us a little about that um that uh the Merkaba? Well, that's um part of the Kabbalist tradition. Yes. And the Kabbalists believed in reincarnation. They had many beliefs which were not shared by mainstream Judaism. You know. 
Um, and I think every religion has a certain esoteric tradition. But in terms of mainstream religions, why they're not more open to NDEs, this is speculation on my part. But from what I've heard and from what I've read, people who have NDEs are more spiritual, but not necessarily more religious. Mm. And having had an NDE doesn't translate into greater church attendance. There was a physician who reported on an NDE, Dr. Mary C. Neal. She was an orthopedic surgeon. She, I think she was um, born Catholic and converted to Mormonism. But after her NDE, she was willing to acknowledge that there are many paths to God. That she didn't think that her religion was the only valid religion. And she was more accepting of other religions and other people, other faiths, other beliefs, other traditions. Mm. So I, I speculate that could be one reason why the traditional church isn't that open to the NDE experience. Because they want to have an exclusive uh, channel to God. And uh, uh, Christians wouldn't like to agree that the Muslims are praying to the same God or that the Hindus are praying to the same God, that we all have an equal, an equal shot at heaven. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, It's too bad because, um, because I've been to a church where the minister decided to preach five Sundays in a row on near death and out of body experiences and he had people jumping up in his congregation and saying, I had one of those, or I saw something like that. I mean, it just electrified the congregation to be hearing these stories. So I think they're missing a bet by, by um, avoiding uh, the discussion. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, in your book, I, you know, I love the, the citations in your book. They're all, they just include so many different points of view. You mentioned the philosopher William James' four-part analysis of mystical experience, including uh, one, no words can describe it. Two, it's noetic, which is knowing or knowledgeable, knowledge-giving. Three, it's a short-term event with lifetime effects. And four, it's a passive experience. And I thought, I mean, how many years ago did he sum this up? And how long is it taking us to learn the, the truth of what he's saying there? That, that is so true, and it also applies to some of the experiences I've had, where mm. I could say there's really no words to describe it. When I described that dream where I felt like I was in the Garden of Eden, I wasn't able to give a proper description of what I was feeling or what I saw in that dream. And, you know, the idea that um, it's a passive experience, the mystical experience is passive, it's not sought out. The various experiences I've had over my life, I wasn't looking for any of them. You know, so in a sense, they, like I say in my book, I didn't go looking for spirit. Spirit came calling for me. And I responded. But I wasn't looking for it. So in that sense, I was passive. And so many people are looking for it and don't have this, these experiences. It's, it's strange how that happens. I well, mean, what I found, and I read about in this my, in my book, is... Um, I, in the in the epilogue, when I was talking about my title, because originally I had another title, but then and I was trying to understand what that title meant. But when I stopped looking for the meaning, then I found the meaning. So I find, and that's true in life too. Sometimes when you stop looking for something, you find it. 
Yes, I found that whole thing about blood and dominion and Virginia fascinating. Yeah, yeah. People should get the book just to read that epilogue. Um, well, do you think with all the books and movies that are on the subject now, uh, TV shows and so forth, that people are beginning to recognize these uh, characteristics um, that uh, William James was talking about? Yes, I think so. But I mean, the best teacher in my mind is experience. And people will recognize those um, criteria that William James listed if they've had the experience. But if not, then it would be very um, difficult for them to understand what he's even talking about. Mm. There are... um... Uh, there's a. It's crossed my mind that scientists should be more interested in, in these events as well, because certain people like uh, Oh Ramanujan, who was an was an Indian mathematician who saw scrolls unrolled by the goddess in his dreams and was considered a genius on that account. Uh, that came from a, that came from visions. And then in your book, you mentioned Professor Albert von St. Gallen Himes. Yes. Collection of NDE stories about fall victims in the Alps that might have influenced Einstein's theories about time. Tell our listeners about that story. Well, he collected a number of stories um, from people who survived death, either through near drowning or falling off a cliff or whatever reason. And he found that people who had these experiences reported the majority of them, not everyone, reported that time stood still. Some people reported that time slowed down, but their their perception of time was altered. And of course, Einstein's theory of relativity, which also deals with time and space, of course says that time is relative. And we, we know that if you're engaged in an activity which you're passionate about, time flies. And if you're you know, doing something that's very boring to you, time slows down. Now, according to um, Einstein's theory, uh, time is affected by mass and gravity. And within a black hole, there is no time. Hmm. So it seems there's a similarity between the NDE experience when there is no time and no sense of time. And what Einstein described as occurring inside of a black hole because of the massive amount of gravity inside the black hole. So, yeah, it seems yeah. there is some kind of correlation there. Yeah, at least it, it, it led him down the right path. Um, I've been in car accidents where time seems to slow down dramatically. And I know you've been in a few. You fell out of a car when, when you were a child. That's right. And, and uh, also, um, I think you went off the road at, at some point in time, a, another car accident. Did you notice the slowing down of time when those things happened? Everything was so fast. It was instantaneous. Mm -hmm. I didn't notice time slowing down. In my mind, time sped up. Hmm. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I have heard of other people who say that everything seemed to be going in slow motion. And and, uh, my wife has had an accident like that, too, sliding on the ice. She knew it was inevitable that she was going to crash. And she was slipping down, I think under the steering wheel 
and everything just seems like it's moving in molasses. And uh, I, I don't know why is there, do you know why the brain might see things that way? Well, time is a very interesting subject. In fact, that's the subject of my next book. I'm going to be writing about the nature of time. Uh-huh. Well, you know, from t- a, yeah. tell us a little about what you're planning to write on. Okay, well, in, in a nutshell, the word time, the word itself, has an Indo-European root, which means to divide. We divide time, and time divides us. We divide time into hours, minutes, and seconds. And time divides us because it separates us from each other, from nature, and from God, and from our divine self. So I'm looking at that from a psychological and a spiritual and a historical and a physical point of view. If, as some people theorize, there is no time on the other side of the veil, then time has been imposed on us for some reason that might have something to do with creation, perhaps. I mean, when they talk about creation in Genesis, it's, it's laid out in terms of days. Um, I mean, time is implied, even though there were no days, (laughs) you know, then there was no sun to rise or set around the earth because the creation was just in the process of happening. And yet they talk about a day the first day, the second day, and so forth. Right. Um, what, um, I'm not sure what my question is about that exactly, except if, there's, if, there's a, if everything is happening in the now, as uh, I think Anita Morjani says, then how um, is time a punishment for us, or is it an, or is it an opportunity to become uh, creative? Well, there's different theories. I mean, some people say time is meant to control us. You know, in in Anita Murjani's book, Dying to Be Me, she talked about her out-of-body experience where she was meeting various spiritual teachers, including her father. And, you know, my recollection of what she said was that, you know, she grew up in, in the Hindu tradition where yes. she's taught, you know, reincarnation means you know, at the time of death, the soul leaves the body and will re-enter the body of a newborn child eventually. So it, it's linear. In our world, we see time as linear. But what her father told her was, was that all of our incarnations are occurring simultaneously. But we as human beings don't have the mental capacity to understand that. We don't understand how that works. But as you say, in the in the spirit world, Many people who've written about it will say that there is no time in the spirit world. I um, recently came across a quote about time by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in a book he wrote called Hyperion. He wrote that time is the life of the soul. Wow. Well, that means once we cross over, if there's no time, does that mean that we somehow disappear? I guess that remains to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> we like to think we're eternal, but on the other hand, if we are all meant to merge into the one, I mean, if that's, and, and I mean, there are more than one references to the, to that in your book, um, that oneness does suggest the um, disappearance of ego and the, yes. merge, and the merging in love. 
which means that a lot of us, a lot of our characteristics, our personalities would be uh, sacrificed, although I think it would be a ter- terrific uh, burden lifted off our shoulders if that mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, I uh, agree. What, what inspired you to write a book about time? I think this is a fascinating subject myself. Well, that's the very reason. It's such a fascinating subject and it's such a big subject. And, you know, I've experienced moments where time disappears, you know. And also, my goal in some ways is to try to help people. Because some people, many people, are so driven by time. They live their life according to the clock. But if I'm able to put forward the proposition that time is an illusion or time is a mental construct, you know, I think that could be helpful for people to put the concept of time in perspective and not let the clock run their lives. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take us back to uh, the brain for a second here. Sure. In your book, you mentioned that uh, out-of-body experiences can be generated or at least simulated by electronic stimulation of the brain or by uh, drugs such as ketamine. And uh, if that can happen and it can be brought on at will, why hasn't science acknowledged the reality of OBEs? Is no one looking at that? Well, I mean, science is a very broad term. Certainly some physicians... Some neurologists, you know, have worked with that, you know, like, for example, Dr. Walter Penfield, who is a neurosurgeon in Montreal. He's the one who did experiments by stimulate electrical stimulation of the right temporal cortex. He was able to produce an out-of-body experience. So those experience, those, sorry, those experiments, I think, are, are pretty well known, you know, in the scientific community. Hmm. So in other words, I'm sure some scientists acknowledge and some don't. Right. Do they say it's a trick of the brain when, when they use uh, chemistry or electricity to, um, to bring on the event? Do they assume that it's uh, just uh, the brain f- being fooled into thinking it's, it's having an out-of-body experience? Well, I'm sure some do. But mm-hmm. as I stated in my book, you know, just because a certain area of the brain is involved in the experience, that doesn't mean the experience has its origin in the brain. Mm. So, for example, you know, if you're trying to describe a beautiful sunset and you can't find the words to describe it, and we know the sunset is processed through the eyes and through the visual pathway and the visual cortex and the occipital lobe, that doesn't mean that the sunset arises from the occipital lobes, but it's being processed there. So therefore, you could say, well, if the right temporal cortex can be stimulated and it can cause an OBE, that doesn't mean the temporal lobe is causing the OBE, but that's the area of the brain that processes the OBE. Mm -hmm. Uh, In your book, you say paranormal events occur when people are under severe stress, but a lot of people hope for them when they are meditating to calm themselves down. Are they on the wrong track? I wouldn't say the wrong track because um, meditation does have a calming effect. And some people do have paranormal experiences while meditating, but not everyone. Mm. 
So is it a matter of somehow by one extreme or the other shutting down the brain so that more of, let's call it, the mind can peek through to our consciousness? Yes, that's one way of putting it. I mean, some people who meditate do have out-of-body experiences. Um, I wouldn't say shutting down the brain. I would say calming the brain. Mm. Or or disorienting. I mean, a, a severe stress can can be disorienting. Yes. I knew yes. I knew a woman who had a um, grand mal seizure, and she said, "Well, her brain was just not operating at all, or there was electricity running every which way through it." That she had the feeling that she knew the answer to every question she'd ever had, and of course, the answers were all lost when she recovered. Oh, right. Well, I've heard of that too from people who've had near-death experiences. They say there's there's a realm where all knowledge exists. Mm. You know, um, the Akashic Record, the, yes, the collective unconscious. Yes, that's right. Well, um, also Dr. Eben Alexander writes about that in his book, Proof of Heaven. Yes. Because he said he was in a coma and his his brain, his EEG was flat. It wasn't His brain wasn't functioning, yet he continued to have dreams and out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences but they couldn't have been produced by the brain because the brain wasn't functioning. Yes. I have to ask you about your Russian grandfather, who's, who was at a concert, I guess, and said, pointed to a, a beautiful woman and said a friend, to a friend, one day that woman will be my wife. He didn't know her from Adam, but uh, it happened. That's was that, right. Is that prophecy or was it intention of will on his part? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I read about the idea of love at first sight. You know, my grandfather, as you mentioned, and my grandmother were both Russian refugees living in London, England at the time. And when he went to the theater, he saw a beautiful woman and pointed the woman out to his friend and said, one day that woman will be my wife. He didn't know who she was, didn't know anything about her. The crowd dispersed. He didn't know how to find her. But a few weeks later, a friend of his asked him if he wanted to go out on a blind date, a different friend who didn't know anything about his experience in the theater. And he went to his blind date and the woman was the woman he saw in the theater and they subsequently married. And so I say, if it wasn't for that event, I wouldn't be here myself. <laughs> but I've also, as it happens, I've had a couple of cousins who told me when they saw their future partner, they immediately knew that they would be married one day. And even I, I read that President Biden with his first wife, that's how he felt when he met her, that one, one day they would be married. So, you know, one hears those experiences and then one wonders if that's saying something about predestination. In other words, if something happens, people will say it was meant to be, as if there was some kind of master plan. Or people might suggest that these were two souls that knew each other in a previous incarnation. And there's a sense of recognition. Yes, that's a very, that's a very good answer. I think that's probably true. People say that to, to each other. I must have known you in a past life. And they don't necessarily mean it, but it, uh, it, it, it could very well be true. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. I, I was going to say, I've got a couple of quotes for you to comment on. Uh, quotes right. from, from your book. 
physicist David Bohm, who lived uh, from uh, 1917 to 1992, said, deep down, the consciousness of mankind is one. Did he mean that in terms of physics or in terms of philosophy or perhaps both? I think uh, Bohm was he, well, as you know, he was a physicist, but he was also a philosopher. And in fact, many physicists seem to be attracted to philosophy. However, I think he was talking about it more in a psychological sense and more in a spiritual sense. You know, and he was also referring to what is known as some people call universal mind, or some people call it collective, the collective unconscious, you know, which is a term that Carl Jung used. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so in that sense, we're all one in the sense that we're all connected. Uh Along those lines, uh, there's another quote from Mario Beauregard that you uh, offered up in the book. The mind is filtered and transmitted by the brain, but not generated by it. So uh, explain what he means by that. Well, I think it was Deepak Chopra who said that the brain is the hardware and the mind is the software. Mm -hmm. Or the mind is a receiver from the collective unconscious. So in my book, I write about the difference, the distinction between the mind and the brain. And I have a section called, where is the mind located? Of course, we think the mind is in the brain. I give an example of planetarian flatworms. The brain is in the front of the worm, but if you cut off the brain, they retain all their memories, you know, and they regenerate the brain. So how do they do that without a brain? You know, um, the question is whether the mind can exist outside of the brain, inside the body, or outside of the body entirely, or both. I mean, I think personally that the mind is more than the brain. The mind can't be explained strictly on the basis of physical structures in the brain. I think there is more to the mind than that. Even, for example, I, I talk about the gut. Some authors call the gut the second brain because there are a lot of neurotransmitters and neurochemicals, including serotonin and dopamine in the lining of the gut. And we talk about butterflies in the stomach or a gut feeling or a gut reaction, something like that. So the mind can be located in different areas of the body and it can also be at times, at times of stress, located outside of the body. I give examples of that in my book. Albert Hoffman, a Swiss chemist who developed LSD, called it the medicine of the soul. And you note that John Lennon wrote, I am the walrus when he was on LSD. And the line that you quote, which is a wonderful line from that song, I am he as you are he as you are me and we are all together. That's that oneness that uh, we're talking about. Um, Right. Yeah, I and think psycho- that's a wonderful line too. Yeah, you know, psychologists are are beginning to explore psychedelics again. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there was a freeze on research with psychedelics. There was a lot of papers written in the fifties and sixties. Then there was a freeze for about forty years when President Nixon brought in the war on drugs. Now there's a lot of studies showing the effectiveness of psychedelics, certain psychedelics in certain conditions. 
one use of psychedelics, which I'm particularly interested in, was the use of psilocybin, which is given to terminally ill patients to help them overcome their fear of death and their pain and their anxiety and their depression. And there's been a lot of success giving psilocybin to terminally ill patients. And they, the patients themselves report that it helps them overcome their fear of death. There's also a lot of um, research being done with psychedelics to treat addictions, especially alcoholism. I know, I know there, there have been some positive studies on that subject as well. Mm. People who have had long-term remissions from alcoholism after treatment with the psychedelic drugs. But nowadays they call it psychedelic medication, not psychedelic drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. By any what other name. <laughs> A rose by any other name. I know. What do you think about that? I think I think LSD was uh, badly handled by Timothy Leary and if he if he uh, and and also by the way by the CIA that used it as a weapon and a, as a truth serum that didn't work. I think uh, that it is a window. Um, I'll, I'll tell you when back in the '60s when I had a few samples from the Esalen Institute, I found that. Um, it was like being born again. It was like seeing the world for the first time. It was like you'd look at a, a flower and it was like the penultimate platonic flower. Um, but it's uh, something that you could have um, uh, bad reactions to as well. But it's a, it's an amazing uh, eye opener. Well, you know, that line you quoted from John Lennon to me, it's about the breaking down of boundaries. Yes which occurs with many psychedelic drugs. Yes. So, I I mean, yeah. Okay, now here's, this is not a trick question, but how is it possible for psychiatrists to really do reality testing, given (laughs) that reality is such a shifting uh, uh, commodity? Sure. Well, that's a, I mean, that is a good question, and there's different versions of reality, But in that instance, I'm talking about consensual reality or objective reality as Mm -hmm. opposed to subjective reality. So we've got to keep it on a fairly fairly simple level. That's right. The chair chair is not a flying mattress. It's correct. (laughs) Okay. That's right. Um, You quote Einstein as saying, our delusion of separateness is a prison. And and you said of yourself uh, that in this, I think this is a quote, the overwhelming feeling in moments of peak joy includes a sense of oneness, the unity of all things. And then you go on to say that when I see a homeless person sleeping on the sidewalk, I don't say that could be me. I say that is me. Where do we go with that realization? Well, at the, at the very least, I think that would lead to empathy mm. for for other human beings who are going through a difficult situation. Um, but aside from that, I think feeling the empathy, the person who has that feeling would want to help the other person. There are so many people in the world in dire need right now. It's hard to know where to turn. Well, you, you, I mean, obviously you can't help everyone, but you could help the person who's right in front of you. Yes. Yes, and and that was a function that churches used to participate in quite a lot. 
In fact, my church is doing that for the homeless right now. Sikhism. You quote this. uh, Sikhism believes that people are trapped in this world by five vices. Lust, anger, greed, attachment, and ego. And that maya or illusion enables these five vices. Do they also contribute largely to um, psychiatric problems, in your opinion? I wouldn't say that. I guess it depends on which type of psychiatric problem you're referring to. That could relate to people with personality disorders. Mm -hmm. For example, narcissistic personality disorder. That could apply, definitely, in terms of the ego, in terms of avarice, lust, greed, and so on. But in terms of Psychiatric disorders, major mental disorders such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or ADHD or PTSD, I wouldn't say that. Okay. Uh, We're running out of time. I have one last question. You say you were intrigued by the sixth day of Genesis when God says, let us make man in our image. And you write, The passage resonated with me because it suggests we create our reality with our thoughts. This idea appealed to me because it brought the creation and the creator together in a universal divine intelligence. We become the creator and the creation. Talk about that a little bit. Well, to me, that speaks of what I would call the divine within. Feeling connected and feeling one with God. And feeling as part of that divine intelligence, we have the ability to be creators ourselves in many different ways. It's interesting how, and perhaps it's the the time, like God's six days that we were given. That's when I, I had mentioned this earlier. I began to reflect on whether creation depends on time. And uh, it was created only for that purpose. Okay, one more. All right. you, you quote, and this is the end of the book, just before the epilogue, you quote Norwegian Karl Knausgaard yes. as saying, meaning is not something we are given, but which we give. Now, I would say an NDE is a gift of meaning that we're given. And by telling our experience, it's a gift of meaning that we give to others. So, so what am I missing here? Well, I wouldn't say you're missing anything. I, I agree with you. But many people who have NDEs or OBEs or other types of experiences like that basically don't share them. They don't talk about them. They just shrug it off and, you know, get on with their life. So in that sense, they're not giving any meaning to the experience because it doesn't have that same impact on them that it could have if they were willing to talk about it and share it with other people. Mm. That could apply to any of the experiences that that I've had myself. As I said, initially, I didn't talk about them. Then once I saw the angels, I felt like I had to talk about them. The angels yeah. gave you meaning. I mean, there was, there was a message. In fact, angels are messengers. And so meaning That's is true. something we are given. That's true. But I guess the difference, the way I see it differently, is that we can either accept the message or we can reject the message. We can take it in or not. Yes, that's true. In other words, we have to participate in the meaning if it has any relevance or significance for us in our lives. Well, Manny, sadly, we're, we're out of time for today. Tell your listeners how they can reach you and 
find your website and your book, The Borders of Normal? My website is drmatas.ca. So I'll spell it D-R-M-A-D-A-S dot C-A. And if anyone's interested in my book, The Borders of Normal, it's available at Amazon. It's available at uh, Google Play. The ebook is available at Google Play and iTunes and Kindle and Barnes and Noble. I list all the different places where it's available on my website. <laughs> <laughs> them all. Okay. And I would I would recommend it to all our listeners. It's a goldmine of, of various mm-hmm. points of view. And I, I love the way you assemble them. And I have a feeling you must have researched for, for quite a while in the preparation yeah. of that book. Yeah. Plus, I think it took, yeah. it took me about eight years. Uh, well, yeah. it, it's reflected in the contents. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 400 archived NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button or subscribe to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can listen and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to like, follow, and share our new NDE radio Facebook page and discover our Facebook group and links to our YouTube channel while you're there. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app with your desktop or mobile device. And go to ions.org to learn all about IONS 2021 annual conference coming up at the beginning of September. It's going to be on Zoom, and uh, I'll be doing a presentation there. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at TalkZone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying... Thanks for listening.